All right, if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 7. Uh, we're continuing our, our congregational journey through the Gospel of John. And last week we wrapped up the sixth chapter, and at the end of the sixth chapter we encountered arguably one of the saddest moments in Jesus' earthly ministry. At the end of the chapter, we saw many of his followers walk away. We watched them turn their backs on Jesus. They, they grumbled about him. They disputed his teachings. They argued and they ultimately rejected his gospel conversation. They had briefly engaged with his works. They had enjoyed his miracles. And then when he started speaking the words that give life, they refused to accept them. Jesus' teaching divided the crowd, and this is not something unusual. We often see this in the gospel, but we don't see rejection at this level. Now, the gospel always divides. When the gospel is proclaimed, people are separated into sheep and goats, but when the dust cleared in Capernaum, we see thousands go away, and only 12 are left standing by Jesus' side. And because we're so familiar with the Gospels, these four biographies of Jesus, we often gloss over these types of discouraging moments. We rarely spend time engaging with the low points of His ministry because we know the high points are coming. You know, we, we do the same thing when we, when we re-watch our favorite movie or reread our favorite book. You know, when the Joker has Batman backed into a corner, we don't sweat it because we know how it's going to play out. When Lord Voldemort seems to have the upper hand on Harry Potter, we just flip to the next chapter with no worry because we know how the story will end. Like we know the happy ending is coming, and so we experience the same sensation when we're reading the Gospels. In the same way, when we look at the end of chapter 6 and it appears that Satan is winning, we don't despair because we know how the story ends. We take in this negative event and we put an immediate positive spin on it. And we say, sure, you know, thousands of men and women left. Thousands of men and women rejected Jesus. A number of them were committed followers. A number of them were close to Him. But better days are ahead. Jesus may only have 12 in His corner right now, but it won't be that way forever. You know, we've read the end of John's Gospel. We know what's coming in the book of Acts. We know more followers are coming. We know that when Christ overcomes the grave, that 12 will become 120. We know when Peter preaches at Pentecost that 120 will become 3,000. We know when Philip takes the gospel to Samaria and Paul takes the gospel to the Gentiles that thousands will become millions and millions will eventually become billions. And so when we see a hopeless moment at the end of chapter 6, we have the, the luxury of knowing the hopeful future on the horizon. And there is value for us in, in, in glancing at the bigger picture. You know, when we read any passage of Scripture, we should always consider how it fits into the larger biblical narrative. And this passage in John from last week was no different. We should view it through the lens of the entire redemptive story from Genesis to Revelation. But we shouldn't be so quick to allow our full understanding of the New Testament to explain away this particular event. Because there's also value for us in reflecting and meditating on this difficult moment. There's also value for us for putting ourselves in our Savior's shoes. You know, in one sense, we can't fully understand what it's like to watch a thousand people walk away from our gospel presentation. And for many of us, we'll never have the opportunity to present the gospel in front of thousands of people. So we can't know what that's like. But we can, 
we can experience that on some level, right? I've been in the Baptist church for three decades, my entire life. I've seen church fights. I've seen church splits. But I haven't seen anything close to what happened at the end of chapter 6. In my four years of vocational ministry, I've presented controversial motions in church conferences. Ones that I didn't think were controversial, but ended up being controversial. I've participated in tense committee meetings. I've been gossiped about. I've been argued with. I've been blessed out. But I've never seen anything close to the end of chapter 6. You know, my preacher has sent a few people towards the exits over the years, but it's usually due to the length, not the context. Right? As my grandfather used to say, you can only handle what your butt can stand. And I usually try to stay between you know, 35 and, and 40 minutes, but for some Baptists, when you get to 12 o'clock, it's time to go. Giving God the hour, it's time to go check on the crock pot. You know, and, and many of you are very gracious to your pastor that when he chases a rabbit or two or rambles for a few extra minutes, you hang in there with me. You let me, you let me land the plane, and I appreciate that grace. I really do. So when we consider this exodus at the end of chapter 6, we can relate on a certain level. Because if you've been in the church for any period of time, you may have seen a similar thing. You may have experienced a similar painful experience. You may have watched someone you love walk away from the faith. Maybe you've seen a family member fall away from the church. Maybe you've seen a close friend reject the bread of life to pursue some bread the world has to offer. Maybe you've seen a church leader removed from his position or her position due to a moral failure. Maybe you've been in the room for a church business meeting where you've watched a group of families get up and leave in disgust when the vote didn't go their way. And so if you've experienced any one of these moments, you know firsthand the searing pain of losing a brother or sister in Christ. You know the heartache of watching someone walk away from the faith. But we would have to multiply that heartache thousands of times over to come remotely close to experiencing what Jesus experienced at the end of chapter 6. And so as we wrap up chapter 6, and before we move to chapter 7, I just wanted to highlight the value in us empathizing with our Savior. Understanding the situation that He's in. Understanding the way His crowd has dwindled. That He has gone from thousands of followers down to twelve. And knowing that, paying particular attention to how he responds in chapter 7. To where he goes from here. To what Jesus' next moves are. And we'll see that after his church attendance plummeted in chapter 6, Jesus launched into a few church growth strategies in chapter 7. And we'll see the first one here in verse 1. Let's start reading together. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. So the feast of booths was at hand. Now the key phrase in verses 1 and 2 is, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. So after the events of chapter 6, Jesus is is going around Galilee. And because of John the Apostle's commitment to highlighting major Jewish festivals for us as as mile markers, we're able to determine how long Jesus was in Galilee. 
Remember in, in chapter 6, the, the miracles and the follow-up conversation were on the heels of the Passover. The Passover happens in the spring. The Passover happens in, in April. And now we're at the festival of, festival of booths. We're the festival of tabernacles. This generally happens in October. Now, if you want more information about the Feast of Booths, you can read Leviticus 23, but mainly it was a festival that, that served two purposes. It commemorated the period when the Israelites lived in tents in the wilderness, and it celebrated the harvest. So it was a, it was a celebration of God's faithfulness in the past and the present. But based on these references to the Passover and the Feast of Booths, we know Jesus was in Galilee for about seven months. But John doesn't give us any more information than that. John doesn't tell us what Jesus does for these seven months. Considering that John only recorded three years of Jesus' ministry, it's kind of unusual that seven months is left blank. We have to remember that John's gospel was not written for the purpose of providing an exhaustive chronology. It was written for the purpose of portraying Christ as the Son of God. It was written for the purpose of portraying Christ as the Messiah. He wrote about Jesus so we may believe in Jesus. He didn't write a perfect historical record with every single detail. Now in the other three Gospels, we're given information about these seven months. And we learn that Jesus during this time mostly disappeared from the public areas. That he, he went out away from the more populated areas and visited smaller, less significant villages throughout Galilee. That he performed a few miracles there. Most notably, the transfiguration occurred during these seven months. But for the majority of this time, Jesus was laser focused on the twelve. He spent most of his time teaching and preparing the disciples. And so as we watch Jesus shift his attention to a smaller group, we're provided with his first church growth strategy. He focused on discipleship. Understand that Christ spent two days teaching a massive crowd, and then he spent seven months teaching a small group. He spent two days with many, and he spent seven months with a few. Now we understand the obvious connection to discipleship. That when we contrast these, these lengths of time, we can't help but conclude that discipleship was an important priority for Jesus. That Jesus was far more concerned with building up his disciples than he was building up a crowd. This is how God operates. Through the ministry of the local church, God gathers a crowd for the proclamation of the gospel. God gathers a crowd for the proclamation of, of who he is and, and what he sent his son to do. And then the gospel divides the crowd. The gospel sorts the sheep from the goats. The gospel draws some in and the gospel pushes others away. And once Christ's followers are saved with the biblical truth, the discipleship process begins and they are trained in the biblical principles. So we aren't talking about a groundbreaking concept. We understand the importance of discipleship in the life of the local church. After all, the Great Commission doesn't say go to all nations and draw the biggest crowd you possibly can. It says go to all nations and make disciples of them. So we understand the principle, but we don't always apply the principle. Often we fall into the trap of becoming too focused on drawing a crowd. You know, in evangelical culture, in church culture, in the Bible Belt, we often evaluate the overall health of our church based on our worship attendance, based on our Sunday school records, based on our baptism reports. 
When we talk to people that go to other churches, we say, how many are y'all running on a Sunday morning? Did you have any new families come to your fall festival? How many, how many children are you, are you going to have at your VBS this year? And we should absolutely track the numbers. We shouldn't ignore the numbers. We have a finite amount of volunteers and resources, so we should always evaluate where and how we can be more efficient and more effective. But if we aren't careful, we can allow our desire to draw a crowd, overwhelm our commission to make disciples. We can become so obsessed with counting heads that we fall short of discipling hearts. A few years ago, I was at a conference. I'm in a room with 8,000 church leaders and the conference speaker asked the question, what if we change the measuring stick in our churches from sitting to serving? In other words, what if we stop tracking how many people come and sit in our pews and we started tracking how many people are trained and sent into our community with the gospel? Because crowds come and go, but disciples remain. And more importantly, disciples gather more disciples. The process repeats itself over and over again. The local church trains, inspires, equips, and encourages a few. And then a few do the same for a few more. And so on and so forth. You know, we love addition, but God is all about multiplication. Eventually, a few become many when you build things the right way. So this is why Christ pulled away for seven months. This is why Christ devoted substantial time to working on the foundation. This is why Christ focused on training the disciples for ministry. And this is why discipleship is vitally important for a healthy church. And I know I keep talking about January and we get to to vision month. We're going to spend a significant amount of time talking about discipleship. One of our core principles will be that we are community-driven. When we gather together on January 19th, we'll, we'll, we'll walk through Acts 2 and, and we'll pull other Scripture to show the benefits of living in community. We'll talk about how we're called to be authentic with one another, how we're called to train one another in the Gospel, to hold one another accountable, to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to work collectively to push one another into a deepening relationship with Jesus. And then as we'll do every Sunday morning of Vision Month, we'll discuss how we operationalize those biblical principles. We'll discuss how we put it into action, what those action steps will be. How we plan to improve the guest experience. How we plan to more effectively assimilate guests into the body. How we plan to equip our Sunday school teachers. How we plan to prioritize events with both a large group and a small group emphasis. And so we're going to to work to become more efficient and effective in our discipleship for a simple reason. It's because Christ focused on discipleship and we should too. We pick back up in verse 3. We get our second church growth strategy. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then in verse 5, we get a note from John. For not even his brothers believed in him. So second church growth strategy. 
He prioritized words over works. In verse 3, Jesus' brothers enter the picture. These are his earthly brothers. These are his half-brothers. These are the sons of Joseph and Mary. In Matthew 13, we're given their names. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So we know Jesus had at least four half-brothers. And these are the guys that are they're talking to him. And they're adamant that Jesus would come up with them to the Feast of Booths. They're, they're, they're adamant about it. They essentially say to him, look, this is required. This is a, a tradition. We, we must go to Jerusalem and, and we want you to, to come with us. Now among biblical scholars, there's great speculation about why the brothers were urging Jesus to come. Because John provides that sort of contradictory footnote in verse 5. After they say, you know, come on Jesus, come, come with us, show everyone your miracles, John notes that they didn't even believe in him. So they're telling him to come and show out, but then John says, but they don't believe. So what's their end game? If they didn't believe in him, then why do they want him to showcase his abilities as a miracle worker? And so commentators and, and theologians have produced a number of suggestions for their actions, and these three are the most common. The first one is that maybe the brothers wanted to have Jesus arrested. They were embarrassed by him. They were tired of him. They didn't believe in him, and they wanted to throw him to the hands of the enemy. Now, there's no scriptural support there, right? And I think it's a little bit of a leap to say that just because they didn't believe their brother was the Messiah, that they wanted to willingly send him to be executed. So it's not that one. Second, they wanted to, to force his hand. They wanted to bring him to the forefront and, and make him become the king, make him become the Messiah that everyone wanted him to be in chapter 6. Make him become this great provider of needs to regain his power and his influence and care for the physical needs of his community. But again, there's not a lot of evidence for that either. So I don't think it's that. And then finally, maybe they just wanted a final answer about him. Maybe they just wanted to know once and for all. You know, this seems to be the most likely solution. That they were surely irritated with Jesus. You know, some of you grew up with a sibling who could do no wrong in the eyes of your parents. I can imagine that would be difficult. I wouldn't know because I was that perfect child in my family. But for those of you who grew up with a sibling who was a golden child, you know what that's like. You know what it's like when your parents say, I love all, you, all of you equally, but it's clearly lip service. Now imagine growing up with Jesus. Imagine growing up with an older brother who gave the right answer to every question, who had the right attitude in every situation, and who had the right solution to every problem. So they didn't believe in Jesus. They couldn't deny something was different about Him. So maybe they were thinking, you know, He could be the political leader we need. You know, he could be the revolutionary hero. He could be the, the great provider. Or maybe he is the Messiah. Or maybe he's insane. So maybe they were unsure about what to make of their older brother. But I think they did know that they had to get him out of Galilee to get a final answer. I think they did know that continuing to stay on the fringes of society would yield little results. As they get a little proverbial with Jesus in verse 4, and they say, For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. 
If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So for the brothers, Jerusalem and the Feast of Booths was a great litmus test. It was a trial by fire. They wanted Jesus to set up shop in, in the middle of a highly populated area and re-engage the crowd. They wanted him to bring his bag of tricks. They wanted him to go down Jerusalem and, and prove himself. And in their defense, we've already seen a few examples of Jesus working this way. We've seen a few examples where the, the works came before the words. You know, in chapter 2, Jesus did a couple miracles, and then Nicodemus was drawn to him for a conversation about salvation. In chapter 5, he healed a, a paralyzed man, and the Jews were drawn to him for a conversation about his relationship to the Father and his authority over life and judgment and his power over final resurrection. In chapter 6, we spent the last few weeks looking at after he fed the 5,000, the crowd was drawn to him for a comprehensive gospel presentation where he said, I am the bread of life. So, so far in the Gospel of John, other than his visit to Samaria where he spoke to a woman by the well, the, the words of Jesus have always been preceded by the works of Jesus. So in one sense, the brothers are just asking him to do what he's been doing. But in chapter 7, Jesus operates with a different formula. His brothers are saying, come with us and, and show them your miracles. But Jesus refused, and we won't get to verse 14 next week, but look down at verse 14. It said, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up and began teaching. See, when he finally did come to Jerusalem, when he finally did show his face at the Feast of Booths, he started with his words, not his works. And so why did Jesus shift his pattern? Well, he shifted his pattern because his words bring salvation. His words are the words of eternal life. Remember, this is what Peter said at the end of chapter 6. After everyone flies the coop, Jesus asked his disciples, do you want to go as well? Everyone else is left. Do you want to go as well? And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. The works drew a crowd, but the words saved Peter. Now the works could be an important part of the process, right? We see this on the divine plane and the human plane. On the divine plane, you know, Jesus may heal a woman of cancer who's prayed to him for the first time. And that miracle may lead to her believing in the gospel. God may heal a couple's marriage, restore a couple's marriage through a series of unexplainable circumstances. And that may lead to their salvation. So works can certainly set the table for the words. You know, and on the human plane, our actions can bolster our gospel witness. Our actions can draw a person to Christ. Our actions can, can bring a person to open their ears to the gospel. Now, this is why we pass out water at the Honeybee Festival. This is why we give up a Saturday afternoon for the fall festival. This is why we pour hours into planning, decorating, studying, and preparing for VBS. We don't do these for our own glory. We don't do these to pat ourselves on the back. We don't do these things to draw a crowd. We do these things for God's glory. Because we know that, that God is glorified when His kingdom moves forward through the proclamation of the gospel. And we know that when we host an event, or we serve out in our community that 
We're praying and hoping that God will provide opportunities to turn everyday conversations into gospel conversations. This is why we do what we do. Last month, I went to the Georgia Baptist Convention. I told some of y'all to pray for me because Baptists like to fight. And there's always a little part of me that's kind of looking over my shoulder because there might be a fist fight in the lobby at any point. But I was so encouraged by, by the vision of the new leadership of Georgia Baptist. I was so encouraged by the, the unity of Georgia Baptist. I was so encouraged to listen to our new executive director stand before a couple thousand Georgia Baptist leaders and present his Mission Georgia initiative on the second day. And he stood before us and he started out you know, listing all the reasons that we love to live in Georgia. He said that Georgia is this wonderful state, this rich tapestry that has rural towns and, and urban cities, that has peaches and peanuts, that has mountains and beaches, that experiences all four seasons for the most part. We get a little long on summer, especially down here. But then he pivoted. He talked about the good and then he talked about the bad. He started pointing to a number of challenges in our state. He started pointing to a number of tragedies in our state. And he provided some heartbreaking statistics. He said human trafficking was a $290 million industry in the greater Atlanta area last year. He said that maternal morality rates in our state are the worst in the nation. He said that illiteracy is rampant, that one out of six Georgian adults can't read, that 63% of third graders don't read at their grade level, which as you can imagine doesn't set those children up for success down the line. And he said that foster care has 14,000 children in the system and that 350 are waiting for adoption right now. And after quoting those statistics, and after bringing up a few mission partners who are working in those spaces, he challenged us with the story of the Good Samaritan. In the parable, a man was attacked by a group of robbers and he was left for dead in a ditch. And as he laid in agony, three men came upon him, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. When the priest saw him, he crossed over to the other side of the road. When the Levite saw him, he crossed over to the other side of the road. When the Samaritan saw him, he dove headfirst into his situation. He cared for him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine over his scrapes. He put him up in an inn. And so when we see brokenness around us, we have two choices. We can walk into the mess or we can walk to the other side of the road. We can walk right towards it or we can pretend like it's not happening. And as the people of God, I would argue that our only option is option one, is to walk towards it. Because when we extend a hand, when we feed a mouth, when we clothe a back, when we adopt a child, when we fight for a person created in the image of God, we earn the right to share the gospel with them. And this is vitally important for us because we live in a culture that is increasingly resistant to the gospel. So we fulfill a physical need hoping that we can speak to a spiritual one. We complete the works of Jesus hoping that we'll have the opportunity to speak the words of Jesus. 
Because the works can lead to words, and the words are eternal life. In verse 6, we see our final church growth strategy. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your hour, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, Jesus remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So finally, we see that he trusted in God's sovereign plan. You know, if Jesus was a run-of-the-mill, glory-seeking, fame-craving false prophet, he would have followed his brothers right into Jerusalem. He would have went where all the people are, and he would have completed miracles, he would have gathered a large following, and he would have basked in their adoration. But Jesus didn't come to gather fickle crowds, he came to gather committed disciples. So he explains to his brothers, you don't understand. You, know, you, you go ahead and go to Jerusalem. You're free to go. You're free to go because you aren't hated by the world. You're, you're part of the world. You, you blend in with these people. But while the world accepts you, the world hates me. The world hates me because I'm bringing light into the darkness. And when light enters the darkness, everything is exposed. This is what the brothers were overlooking. This is what the brothers didn't understand. This is what the brothers couldn't wrap their minds around. That the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because He exposed their sin. The religious establishment, the, the Pharisees, had fooled the masses. They had pretended that they were these beacons of righteousness. They had put on this amazing front. But they couldn't fool Jesus. He saw their pride. He saw their conceit. He threatened their religious monopoly. He showcased their evil deeds and they hated Him for it. That's why in verse 11 they're looking for Him. That's why they're asking, where is He? They were expecting Him to come up in a caravan with His family, but when He didn't show up, they said, where is He? But Jesus didn't come because His time had not yet come. Jesus would come to Jerusalem a few days later, but He'd show up in secret because His time had not yet come. Jesus says twice in these verses that my time has not yet come, and the key word is yet. They would not capture Him yet. They would not judge Him yet. They would not throw a mock trial for Him yet. They would not mock Him Yet. They would not spit on him yet. They would not crucify him yet. But at this point, Jesus is already well on his way to the cross. His time was not this day, but his time was coming the next spring at the next Passover. 
And so his brothers wanted him to come publicly and, and make a scene because they couldn't see the whole picture. But Jesus came in a different way. Jesus came privately because He could see the entire redemptive plan of God unfolding. And He knew exactly what He needed to do. You know, yesterday, there was a football game in Atlanta. I didn't want to mention it again, but sometimes I feel better after I verbalize my feelings. So y'all just grant me this. You know, when Georgia lost yesterday, they were essentially eliminated from the championship picture for another year. And because I'm a glass half full Georgia sports fan, I said to myself, hey, trust the process. We're on the right trajectory. Next year's the year. And I find myself repeating this phrase to myself over and over again as a Georgia sports fan. A couple years ago when the Falcons blew a 28-3 lead in the Super Bowl, I said, trust the process. We'll be back. Our offense is unstoppable. Next year's the year. It wasn't. When the Braves lost their 10th consecutive playoff series in October, I said, trust the process. We have so much young talent. We just need to find, sign a few key veteran free agents. We'll be right back in the thick of it. Next year is the year probably won't be. When the Dogs lost yesterday and extended their national title drought to its 40th anniversary, I said, trust the process. We have a great recruiting class. We have good players coming back. We'll learn from this experience. We'll be back. Next year is the year. But I can't tell you if that's really true. Sometimes I wrestle with doubt. Often I'm disappointed. But with my sports teams, I still hope for the future. I still trust the process. When the crowd left Jesus at the end of chapter 6, He made three moves that we probably wouldn't have made. Instead of gathering a large crowd, He focused on a small group. Instead of using His works to gain attention, He prioritized His words. Instead of following His brother's agenda, He stuck to His father's timetable. He trusted the process because he knew the small group would lead to a gospel revolution. He knew his words were the words of eternal life, so he didn't dare soften them. He didn't dare twist them. He didn't dare pull away from them. And he knew his father's plan would bring redemption to a sinful generation. He trusted the process. So church, as we're a few weeks away from tying a bow on 2019 and heading into a new year and talking about a, a unified vision for 2020 and beyond, I urge you, trust the process. Because I believe with every fiber of my being that if Charity Baptist Church is a church that is gospel-focused, community-driven, servant-hearted, and kingdom-minded, that we will see God work in us and through us in incredible ways. Trust the process. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the example of Jesus. 
we thank you that that he is the perfect example for us so often. Lord, at the end of chapter 6, we found him in a in a difficult spot and if I was leading a church that went from thousands to 12, I can't say confidently that I would have made the decisions that he made. But Lord, there are important principles for us here. Understanding the importance of discipleship. Understanding the importance of gospel-centered teaching. And understanding the importance of trusting in your plans and trusting in your timing. Lord, these principles don't always come naturally to us. But Lord, we know these principles are our best hope for success. So Lord, help us. Help us be the church you've called us to be. Help us be a church who who pushes in and reaches out. A church who pushes each other to Jesus and reaches out and shares Jesus with our community. Lord, that's our collective prayer. Help us be that church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.